Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me is my partner in crime, Luke Thompson. And this week, we are continuing our look at the historical Congress. I just want to say at the outset, one of the challenges, I think, in studying subjects of political science, such as Congress, as opposed to studying history, is that there really is no obvious starting point when you're talking about an institution of politics, because everything is kind of interconnected. Everything is caused by everything else in a way that at least with history, you have temporality giving you an opportunity to say, okay, we're starting here, right? We're starting with the Renaissance and moving forward, or we're starting with the end of the French and Indian War moving forward. And one of the challenges is when we're dealing with Congress is because, you know, we're going to be talking about parties and committees and things like that without, um, you know, having yet sat down and really gone over the nitty gritty of the functions that they serve. Um, And so I think one of our overarching goals with this series is that if something while Luke and I are talking feels a little underdeveloped at that point, hopefully by the end, when you can kind of see the the whole picture of Congress, it'll make more sense. I mean, I, and the reason I bring this up is that, you know, last week we were talking about the development of the committee system as a hedge or maybe hedge is the wrong word, counterweight to executive influence and the need to develop policy expertise. That We're going to get into that later on when we actually talk about the modern committee system as a major function that the committee serve. And likewise, we're going to be talking today about how early on in, well, I would say toward the end of the Jeffersonian era, the committees begin to take on a more partisan political cast where uh, the committees are the place where parties operate. And so, you know, again, that's going to be something we're going to look at later on when we get to the modern Congress and the role of parties in the modern Congress. So just hang tight with us while we go through the history. If you know, I don't understand why there are committees or how the parties function. We'll get to that later on and just sort of keep that stuff in the back of your mind. We had left off last week talking about, as I mentioned a moment ago, the creation of the Ways and Means Committee, which is the oldest continuing standing committee in the House of Representatives, and also for that matter, the entirety of the United States Congress. And it was created so that the House could develop policy expertise of its own and write its own tax legislation rather than just enacting the legislation that was proposed by the executive branch. And it was a Republican, a Jeffersonian Republican creation. Created in, yeah, go ahead, Luke, please. Before before we get into concrete history of this, which is really important, I'd like to put two conceptual things up front, if that's all right. Um, Mm -hmm. So what you'll notice as we talk, especially about the back half of the first Congress, is there's a lot of very self-conscious creating executive power going on, right? It's quite obvious that that's what Congress is doing. But over time, um, this sort of fades. And in our modern era, really everything after the 1930s, 
we've sort of stopped thinking about Congress as the repository of authority that creates power that the ex executive then operates on, right? And we've mentioned and gestured toward this collaborative division of labor theory of power in previous episodes and, and even in previous episodes of Constitutionally Speaking, but I think it might be a good idea now to just flesh out up front what the participants think is going on and why the committee system is an answer to that problem and also an answer to problems they don't yet know that they have. Um, so as I said, all power emanates not directly from the Constitution, but from the Congress, right? Congress creates power. It creates the executive power, which is to execute the laws, right? To administer the laws. It creates the judicial power, which is in, as with the executive, they can create offices and office holders, but also they can give remits. Uh, they create the laws that are to be judged under individual cases and controversies, right? So, so they're not allowed to say, you, Judge Doe, go out and find bad things and, and punish the bad people, right? They don't get to create judge dreads. They have to create laws and then individual cases and controversies arise under those laws. And those cases are assigned to courts that are created either at the state level or at the federal level um, by, by Congress. Um, so what that means is that in the minds of the framers and really the minds of Americans up until the 1930s and certainly, it, and if not, you know, at least until the 1970s, what would happen is that if you as the executive or the, the judiciary felt something was needed, right, you, you more or less pled your case to Congress and said, hey, we really, we really need this. So can you give me something to do this? Uh, whether that's, um, you know, to assess the roads, whether that's to uh, you know, fund a subordinate court because, or to create a new circuit court because the existing circuits have become bloated and un, unmanageable, right? All of these things are, are created by Congress. Now, Congress can seek its own information, but under this theory of power creation, uh, the executive is to bring information to Congress. And in a, in a world without sort of politics or underhandedness, or even in a world without ambiguity, and, and uh, you know, uncertainty, it would be very simple. The executive would bring information to the Congress. The Congress would look at the information, come up with the obvious answer in terms of rules or institutions that needed to be created to uh, address the problem. And then the executive would take that information and, and, and go and, or take that new law or that new institution, staff it and go and solve the problem. Um, what that meant as a practical matter is that Congress would write two sorts of laws. They would write laws that were either, you know, this is allocated funding, do this, don't do that, something that's a sort of universal, or they would write conditional laws where the executive would come and say, having established that circumstances X, Y, and Z have been met, um, I am going to do A, B, and C in accordance with a law that said, if the executive says X, Y, and Z happen, then the executive can do A, B, and C. The reason laws were written in this conditional fashion is that it made the executive own the facts that the executive was presenting under punishment of perjury, right? And so um, the, the legislature can say, look, executive, if a house is on fire, or if you know a certain number of houses are on fire, you're authorized to pull down the surrounding houses to prevent the fire from spreading, right? Um, thus, 
the executive has to report to Congress, I have found the facts that these houses are, are, are on fire, so I'm pulling down these houses. If it then emerges after that zero houses were on fire and the executive was just pulling them down because there was some sort of corrupt land bargain going on, the executive having issued a sworn statement to fact set to Congress could be subject to perjury, which is a high crime and misdemeanor, which could trigger impeachment proceedings if Congress chose. So that's that's the epistemological system that's at work in the creation of these powers. Now, what happens, and, and we'll go into detail on this in a moment, but especially when Hamilton shows up. Hamilton is able to marshal a huge number of facts, but what he doesn't do is present Congress with, um, shall we say, facts about the political ramifications of what he wants them to do, let alone facts about the certainty uh, around these facts, right? Like to not to get into radical nominalism here, but, you know, Alexander Hamilton can come and say, this is the case, but with what degree of certainty, right? Well, 90%, 15%. Hamilton may be highly uncertain, but really think that they, they need to get the, the resulting powers. And so even without lying, you can have a, an executive that, that dresses up, that sort of spruces up the, the certainty surrounding um, a set of facts. And so it's for ultimately, it's for the purposes of, of discernment, both of the quality of the facts that are being reported, right, and also uh, in order for Congress to suss out both individually and collectively their own interests politically and economically, whatever, for, for their districts around those fact sets that's driving this, um, the emergence of the committee system and the need for specialization. Often we sort of allied this all under the header of policy expertise, and that's certainly what it, it is. But to break it down, what it really means is the ability, at least in these, these stages through you know, the 20th century, a, a chunk of the 20th century at least, to assess the quality of the information that the executive is providing. Yeah, I think it, it bears mentioning that Hamilton was often what's the word I'm looking for? A tendentious reporter of facts as well. Often in error, but never in doubt. Yeah, but also, yes, very confident of his capacity to discern the truth, but also very slippery with his use of logic and rhetoric. For instance, you could, because you can see this if you look at the Federalist Papers, you can see he, he, attacks a lot of straw men in that, in his essays, and, and is actually very insulting to his critics, sometimes directly, often indirectly. Any person with a lick of common sense will appreciate that this is the truth, when in fact, this is a controversial position among, about which people can disagree. Um, and you could see this, for instance, in Hamilton's report on manufacturers, where Hamilton is proposing an expansive program of industrial protection that is going to be very good for the manufacturing minority in the country. Hamilton wants to get around this by arguing that in the long run, the agricultural majority will benefit, but it's all just sort of swashbuckling prose and alighting the actual cost to the country of doing this and the long-term benefits to the agricultural majority are a little hazy. So I think that's an important 
point to understand when we're talking about the committee system. I think, Luke, you're right on the money here where it is a it is a way for Congress to develop independence from the executive branch. And I think one could be forgiven, especially if one were on the Republican side of the ledger in the 1790s for thinking that executive domination of the government was going to be the wave of the future. But that's not really what we see. Adams, who, of course, replaces Washington in 1797, doesn't have any kind of coalition like what Hamilton enjoyed in the Congress, doesn't have the national prestige that Washington had, although he is a very important person. Adams is also very cranky and people know him to be curmudgeonly and so his reputation precedes him. The, in the early American period, before we get into patronage, which we're gonna talk about shortly, I would say the, the only president who really exercised that level of influence over Congress in the first 35 years of the country's 30, 35 or so years under the Constitution was Jefferson. Jefferson, like Washington, had a reputation having been the author of the Declaration of Independence and had a very loyal following within Congress. And one of the things that um, Jefferson liked to do was invite members of Congress over to dinner to sort of exercise what we might today call soft power. And his critics would complain that, you know, Jefferson just whispers in the ear of members of Congress on Friday night dinners and by Monday, the matter is settled without any debate. But it's interesting, though, that even during this period, we see Jefferson having limited influence over Congress in, in several important senses. But an early one is that the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, who was effectively the leader of the party in the House, was John Randolph of Roanoke, who was a very staunch critic, early critic of Jefferson, and hated Madison had hated Madison for several years. And that, and the reason why is that Nathaniel Macon, who's the Speaker of the House, nominated John Randolph of Roanoke, who was to be chair of the Ways and Means Committee, basically because, you know, uh, Randolph was his friend. So even early on then, you see, uh, there's a couple themes here. You see, the fear of congressional dependence upon the executive branch in the early age of the American system, especially in the Jeffersonian era, is overstated. It doesn't come to pass to that extent. And then you also see Congress being unpredictable in terms of its organization being fluid and not hard and fast party lines. And you know, during Madison and Monroe's administration, you see very little even effort to influence Congress. Madison hardly tries. You know, you would think that James Madison by 1809 had been in American politics at that point for more than 30 years, was widely known as influential in writing the Constitution, not, not yet named the father of the Constitution, and his 
notes on the Constitutional Convention hadn't been printed yet, so people don't know just how much he did. But he's widely known as being influential and having been around for, he doesn't even try to influence Congress. Likewise, Monroe and Quincy Adams don't really try very much either. So this anxiety about executive interference in legislative affairs really dies out with Hamilton, to be honest. I mean, Jefferson was able to influence things in, and in his own way, not seeing it as the proper role of the executive, but just almost Jefferson is kind of a party leader uh, doing that. So the, the early era of congressional you know, development of independent institutions from the executive branch, they're almost not entirely necessary at this at this point. You know, if, especially you know once we get out. So once Hamilton leaves the government. The, the kind of the threat that, you know, would harken back to Bolingbroke and the country wigs and the sort of anxiety about executive patronage meddling in the affairs of the people really kind of disappears. Yeah. Why, why does it, why do you think, why does it disappear? I mean, I, there's a like, couple, yeah, there's a couple of reasons I would say. Um, I think the, the first is that the Republicans take the supremacy of the legislature that is is a serious doctrine for them so it's a very serious doctrine for madison it's a serious doctrine for monroe as well and it, it, and, and jefferson jefferson as is is in so many ways took the doctrine seriously but also was a hypocrite with respect <laughs> to it which was kind of his mo Jockey. in so many different ways so i would say that's part of it but I would say, additionally, you have, think about how Hamilton was able to wield the kind of influence that he was able to wield. It's that his economic policies that he was proposing were very good for members of Congress, who happened to be the owners of the capital that he was looking to privilege. So Hamilton was able to build up a cadre within Congress built on what we might call patronage, but isn't exactly fair to Hamilton. It's just that Hamilton's policies were intended to benefit an entire class of people who were overrepresented in Congress. In the Jeffersonian era, you don't see that. You know, Jeff Jefferson is looking to impose economy on government. He's looking to cut taxes. Uh, he's looking to limit spending. In fact, that kind of political ethos, which is to not spread the largesse around, but to cut back on the opportunities of largesse, ends up being a huge problem for Madison because Gallatin, as Secretary of the Treasury, had more or less been Jefferson's hatchet man in the quest for economy and government, particularly with respect to the Navy. And Gallatin, by the time of 1809, has so many enemies in Congress that Madison doesn't even try to name him Secretary of State. Not only that, this is one of the most extraordinary things is that the, the uh, Russians had agreed to broker peace negotiations with the Americans during the War of 1812. And so the Americans, 
accept, we'll do this. The British end up rejecting this and then later on propose direct negotiations for which Gallatin is selected. But the initial Russian offer of mediation, Madison names nominates Gallatin as one of the American negotiators. And his, the, the Senate turns down his nomination. They reject, think of all of the people to have been rejected by the United States Senate to reject Albert Gallatin is beyond insane in historical retrospect. But it <laughs> speaks to the Jeffersonian commitment to economy and government means that unlike Hamilton, they don't have the way of influencing, and, and Hamilton understood this, right? Influencing the ambitions of men, the desires of men for wealth and status and power. Hamilton knew that those were levers that uh, an a energetic executive could wield. And not only do the Jeffersonians think that's inappropriate, they get rid of those levers themselves. I, in, that would be my answer to your question. Yeah, it is. I mean, they are genuinely hidebound by ideology and in a lot of places. Well, I mean, it's always a little unclear because so much of it is derivative from their perception of political economy. But, um, but let's, I mean, let's talk about where exactly do you, where do they get pantsed, I guess, by the report on manufacturers? Like what, what scares the hell out of them? Because I know, you know, we've talked about this before, Jay, part of it is Hamilton's personality, right? Mm -hmm. Part of it is they kind of know he's putting one over on them, or at least he's telling, he's not being, he's not being generous. He's not defaulting to sharing, but like, is there a particular trigger that wigs them out? I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I take the view, I guess I should step back and say, I take the view that a committee system was, was as inevitable as the departmental system, right? That they were mm -hmm. always going to specialize within it. And obviously there was no internal conflict with the non-delegation doctrine to have subsets of the legislature delegated to specialize. That's a, a longstanding practice in even the sort of quasi-legislative entities that we talked about in the first episode in this miniseries, right? You, you, could, you could get a group together. Um, they had a committee on style at Philadelphia. You know, there, are, there are always ephemeral committees. The formation of standing and persistent committees that, that move with Congress after Congress may not have been a given, but once you have structure in the executive branch, probably going to be a given, right? Um, but is there, a, is there a moment that triggers it, or does this sort of just emerge from an ambient unease? I would say there's no particular moment that triggers the rise of the Ways and Means Committee in the sense that Hamilton was posing an immediate threat at that point, because the Republicans end up becoming strong enough that basically the last major domestic policy initiative that Hamilton is able to implement is the National Bank. That's the last thing he's able to implement. I, I think that the experience of the assumption of the state debts had a profound influence on Madison's thinking, Jefferson's thinking, and in general, the Republican sense of what the Federalists were up to. And I think it's important to you know, see that as Hamilton taking advantage of ambiguities and a lack of understanding to push through what was a highly, highly ideological piece of legislation. So Hamilton's 
uh, report on public credit included, which is released in the winter of 1790, January. We talked about this last time. Uh, it contains two parts. The first is the assumption or the promise to fully repay the national debts virtually at face value. Foreign creditors would get all of their money. Um, domestic creditors would get all of most of their money with a slight reduction in interest in exchange for options on Western land. And that Madison doesn't like that. He doesn't think that's a fair deal, but let's put that aside. The bigger issue is the assumption of the state debts. Hamilton says that we're going to assume $35 million worth of state debts. Here we go. Boom. $35 million. We're going to take $35 million or whatever. Maybe it was 30. I think it was 35. And Madison is aware. And on this, Madison actually has the better argument on the assumption of the state debts. Hamilton's I thinking on the assumption of the state debts was first of all, it was a matter of equity because the debts had been accrued in defense of the country during the war. So it was only fair for them to be uh, assumed by the federal government. Hamilton also sees a civic purpose, which we had alluded to last week in the reorientation of state creditors into national creditors, creating loyalty among economic elites in the states toward the federal government over and above their state governments. And, and also international creditors too, right? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. That's yeah. A, well, a so Mad- Madison doesn't have any problems with that per se. The problem though, is that it has been a decade or so since the fighting stopped and many states like Virginia had paid back. Some states had suffered economic damages more than others. Some states had suffered very little, and, uh, and some states hadn't done the hard work to pay off their debts. And as a matter of fact, there were really only uh, three states that were set to make a huge uh, bounty off of the assumption of the national debts. And I, it was Connecticut, I think Massachusetts, and South Carolina. Those were the three states who were overwhelmingly in arrears. So Hamilton's blanket plan would have just given them, basically, it's almost like a moral hazard. In Virginia, having paid its debts, sorry, that's sort of Hamilton's idea. Now, you can imagine a proposal like this today going into the committee system and going through the procedures in Congress where Congress takes the bill, it you know, that sort of story about, you know, that old schoolhouse rock thing, how bill becomes a law, right? That Congress would work its will on it and it would find some kind of negotiated common ground that would work for everybody. Congress doesn't have the institutions to do this. And so what happens is, is that Madison, you know, Hamilton's, idea is proposed. Madison in the spring of 1790 rallies a very narrow coalition to defeat the bill for the sake of equity. And then the supporters of the bill begin basically hostage taking, similar in many respects to, if you remember in 2011, the brinkmanship with regard to the debt ceiling, they start doing something like that. That the supporters of the assumption of the state debt say, and they don't say it out loud. They strongly hint at it, though, and there's operations going on behind the scenes. But the gist of their argument is 
if you don't give us the assumption of state debts, we're going to kill the funding of the national debt, which would have been calamitous. So rather than really what they needed to do was they needed to put together a blue ribbon commission to see who owed, who was owed what, and have the federal government set it up like that. But they didn't have the instrumentalities for that at that point. And ultimately, this is where you get the famous so-called compromise of 1790, where the typical story you'll hear, which I actually think is mostly bullshit, the typical story, because it it's Jefferson's story, and I don't think it's accurate. The typical story is that Jefferson sat Hamilton and Madison down for fine Madeira wine, and they traded the situating of the capital on the Potomac in exchange for the assumption of the state debts. I don't think that really is what happened for a variety of reasons, one of which is Madison never said that that was what would happen. Number two, Madison was still pissed at the end of the whole experience. Number three, the holdup for the Capitol was actually in the Senate, and Hamilton didn't have as much influence in the Senate as he had in the House. So I'm not even sure how Hamilton would have been able to deliver something like that. But at the end of the day, there is some sort of grand bargain that's hashed out. The capital was probably part of it. And then also some credits for states like Virginia that had paid. And the final solution is fine. It was, it was a good compromise in many respects. But the problem, though, is that because Congress lacked the institutions to hammer a compromise like that out, and you can appreciate how something like this would be an opportunity to find middle ground because the government is just basically distributing money. So certainly we can figure out a way to make everybody happy. It's, you know, the size of the check or whatever. But because Congress doesn't have the institutions to, do, to hammer such a, a solution out, you get this high level game of brinksmanship. And it clouds, it ends up having the effect of clouding Madison and Jefferson's, but Madison especially, Madison's view of Hamilton and his allies in this sense that they were willing to tank the entire country for their payday. They're enemies of Republican government. We need to battle up. Like we're in a war for the soul of self-government itself. And so this is where you begin to see the hyper-partisanship of the 1790s really traces back to the assumption battle. A lot of times people think, oh, well, it was the Bank of the United States that did it. No, not really. The bank actually passed very easily through uh, the House of Representatives. Likewise, the plan to fund the national debts, again, passed very easily through the House of Representatives. Hamilton's plan for protection, industrial protection, was never really given, never had a chance. It was really the assumption battle that sets the entire framework of the 1790s and that kind of paranoid element of American politics really gets started there. Now it gets facilitated later on because America is caught in the middle between Britain and France, which happens to overlap regional and ideological lines. And so the Republicans and the Federalists begin thinking that the opposition is an agent of a foreign power. So it gets reinforced there, but that's really the kernel that's, that's where that grows into this partisan, hyper-partisanship from which ultimately we get um, the Ways and Means Committee. It's almost like, think, it's like American politics in the 70, 1790s sounded a lot like Ukrainian politics sounds now, where it's just like each side is claiming that the other is, is extremely 
corrupt and, and the, the puppet steel pigeon of some vast foreign power. And yeah. instead of instead of you're a fascist uh, or you're a communist, it's you're a monarchist or you're a, a, a Jacobin, right? Yeah. And so what's interesting, and I think this is probably a good way to, um, or, or point which we should probably pivot and, and mention Henry Clay as being, so Clay comes along later. Clay doesn't make his first appearance in the American story on a national level until 18, I think 1810. He's put in the Senate in 1810. And he gets elected to the House of Representatives in 1812. And, and you know, you can sort of see American politics as BHC and AHC before Henry Clay and after Henry Clay. Uh, Henry, I, I love Henry Clay. I think I've probably made that very clear. I think he's just amazing. He, he, he's just so cool. And he comes on the scene and he's just, he's awesome. And it's Clay who, interestingly enough, begins to impose the semblance of discipline and organization on the house in a way that neither Jefferson nor Madison had been able to do. So Clay comes in, I think, I want to say Clay comes in in the 12th Congress, I think, the 12th. Yeah, no, I think the 13th Congress is Clay's first Congress, regardless. Madison is writing these letters, you know, saying, ugh, the 12th Congress, the previous Congress, they're, they're terrible. I, I, I can't get them to do anything for me. They're awful. And he's at a loss to do anything about it. He just, he's almost, has, he's trying to like negotiate. It's a very weird spectacle. Madison's first term, where he's trying to affect some kind of negotiated settlement with Britain and France, and he wants to use commercial warfare in some way to do it. But Congress is so lily-livered, they can't give him the tools to do it, and Madison lacks the disposition to, and also the resources to force Congress's hand. It's Congress ultimately finds the backbone in itself with the emergence of the Warhawk faction that's elected in 18, well, I guess they're elected in 1810. And the Warhawks, so what that would put Clay in the Senate in 1809. So my, my dates are a little shifted. But the Warhawks were really the ones who, while not amounting to a majority within the House of Representatives, the Warhawks are an energetic faction and they get Clay elected Speaker of the House. And it is then where you begin to see the development of real party discipline within the House around the person of Henry Clay. So for instance, John Randolph of Roanoke is still in the House and he's a very weird character um, who was very intimidating <laughs> and posing. Um, he had a very high pitched voice because I think he had some kind of developmental disorder or something, uh, but he would bring his dogs onto the Senate floor and he was a great, he was a great rhetorician. I mean, he was just great political rhetoric um, and Clay and, and, the, and they, the house would let him speak because they were scared of him, but Clay shut him up. Clay ruled him out of order, made him take his dogs off of the house floor basically put the guy in his place and then clay also begins to use the position as speaker of the house to stack the committees with his allies so the the extent to which the united states actively begins in 1811 to prepare for war is in large measure an extent to which this 
new group of people who would end up sort of defining the second party system. You get people like uh, Calhoun is in there and Clay is in there. Webster's there on the other side, but you also get people like Langdon Chevis, get a whole bunch of just people who end up becoming big deals in the second party system coming to Congress then. And they begin sort of reorganizing it in a way to actually give it um, heft. And after the war is ended, those people are still around. And when Madison presents this new economic vision, it's people like Clay it's and Calhoun in the house are instrumental in making that happen. So it's really, those guys end up imposing the kind of discipline and ideological coherence to create the political economy that would define basically United States economic policy until the Great Depression, which was sound money, protective tariffs, and an emphasis on internal improvements and government facilitation of westward expansion. Those are the three big things that really define the country. And it was set in a lot of respects, it was set during that uh, post-war Congress where it's guys like Clay and Calhoun who are there and who are pushing it, and they're doing it very conscientiously within a Republican paradigm. Um, fun little note on uh, fun. I don't know. So uh, Randolph um, was very strange and he was one of these sort of quintessential Virginia hypocrites in that he hated mm-hmm. slavery, but owned hundreds of slaves. Um, and he, he winds up freeing his slaves um, in his will. And uh, something like 400 of them wind up settling in Cincinnati, Ohio, or just outside Cincinnati in a, in a community. Um, also he and Clay for all their differences wound up being, um, they were early advocates for, uh, for the, uh, what, what's the term I'm looking for, Jay? The, the um, manumission, manumission oh. and, and transport to Liberia. They're early champions right. for Liberia, which is, you know, this kind of lost colonization, um, the, the, which is kind of this lost period of, of, you know, pre, you know, pre-crisis attempts to reckon with slavery, pre-cotton gin attempts to reckon with slavery as well. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. So during this period, then you see a lot of the real action is in the House of Representatives in the in the in the Jeffersonian era, and had been in the 1790s. But as we move into the Jacksonian era, and especially we begin to move into the antebellum period, we see the place of action shift in many respects to the United States Senate. And there's a number of reasons for that. Look, I wonder if you could give our listeners a sense of when that happened and what that kind of shift looks like. Sure. I mean, um, so the shift to the Senate, uh, I guess you could say the shift to the Senate is driven successively by three forces. Um, The first, as we talked about in our last episode, is um, the possibility of senators to hang out in Washington and actually learn some things, whereas, uh, you know, your members of the House are spending probably eight months legislating out of a, out of a two-year period, and um, within those eight months, you also have extended holiday uh, recesses, and so, um, you know, th- that's sort of part one, right? The Senate is institutionally and structurally well-positioned to be the repository of expertise because of the six-year term. Um, it's also structurally 
a good repository for expertise because the senators are selected from the state legislators. And uh, what that means is that senators are in constant contact with their with the majorities in their state legislatures and are gathering, you can sort of think of them as gathering intelligence from the uh, from the, the delegates, representatives, and state senators that, that have selected them. Um, and that's, I, I mean, that's something that's sort of hard to put your finger on today, um, you know, since it's been 100 years since direct election, but more than 100 years. But the, um, but, you know, the idea was that it, it's sort of the way that legislative offices talk to activists and business leaders and things like that today back then your senators your senators actually for the sake of retaining their hold on office had to be intimately familiar with the political and policy priorities and the news of the day frankly coming from their state legislatures so those those are the two sort of structural reasons why you have expertise um that second structural reason then dovetails especially after the civil war with um the rise of the patronage party system. Senators become focal points for this. Uh, the, the reality is that, um, you know, because they're in direct contact with the state legislatures, they're well positioned to be clearing houses between the presidency and state party coalitions in order to, to distribute the vast number of patronage jobs that come with the federal government. Um, you know, today the president appoints about 4,500 political appointees. Um, by the end of the 19th century, you know, you have, you know, 20 times that number just in the post office, right? I mean, every single government function outside of the judiciary and law enforcement is handled through the patronage system. So your postal carrier, is going to switch depending on who wins the presidency. Your surveyors are going to switch. All of these things are going to go in and out, right? Tax collectors, um, you know, people who levy fines, people who levy tariffs, port inspectors, it, you name it. All of these jobs move in and out through the patronage system. And senators serve as the clearinghouse because they have this structural connection to the state legislatures and the state legislators and their leaders are aggregating a lot of these job requirements, putting the names forward and having them signed off on by the president. So presidents during the 19th century, um, after what we generally call the second party system gets going, are are winning at conventions because they manage to muster coalitions of state parties. Those state parties are held together by the, by the distribution of vast numbers of, of, of patronage jobs. And the way that generally works is the state legislature aggregates things, they forward it to the senator, the senator or senator's broker between each other, if they're from the same party or against one another, um, and then they, they move it up to the president and the president more or less signs off on everything um, with a handful of, of kind of horse trading things going on at the level of the individual senators, right? Um, that also gives the senators an immense amount of power and it makes them, many of them extremely wealthy um, because you don't have the kind of conflict of interest laws or rules that we have today. So, you know, Nelson Aldrich can become a gazillionaire because the sugar <laughs> trusts just pay him essentially for being a senator. Um, <laughs> you know, imagine if, well, anyway, we won't go there uh, uh, 
but the so I, I think the you know that's that's one way to think about this is is senators in addition to being you know deliberators and um, specialists because of their structural protections around the six year term are also running massive temporary staffing agencies for their for their individual states. The third force that emerges that makes the Senate and uh, the, the sort of central locus of the committee system is the collapse of competitive politics in the South in the wake of the Civil War and the, and the failure of Reconstruction. Um, you know, Jim Crow emerges over time. It doesn't spring fully formed. It changes over time. But what doesn't change after the Hayes withdrawal from the, of, of federal forces from the South is the total hegemonic domination of Southern politics by the Democratic Party, really until the year 2000 at the state level. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Most of what you've been told about the Southern strategy and Richard Nixon is wrong and stupid. Don't believe it. It's much more complicated than that. Actually, so when I was writing my first book, I, I, I was on the Democratic Party. That phrase, I think, originates from two journalists from Georgia who wrote a book called the Southern strategy or something. And it's just, it's inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just not true. Like Nixon's plan in 1968 was specifically to focus on the border South because he knew he couldn't win the deep South. Right. And a lot of that has to do with white ethnic manufacturing and mining and things like that. Yeah. I mean, which which people miss, right? Like we have this vision of, of mining in the border States as all Scots, Irish Appalachia, but there's lots of Italians, lots of Greeks. I mean, all of that kind of gets wiped away from the Ellis Island style of history. I mean, you have lots of people who show up at Ellis Island, go immediately to Kentucky mine and then move back to New York. Or like you look at a place like Texas and you can see, Oh, go and look at like in Texas in the 1920s, you see all these Republican areas. Even without um, Al Smith on the ballot, you're like, who are these guys? And then look a little closer. Oh, that's the oil industry coming into the mix there. Anyway, that's a good point. Look, but yeah, and you get the rise. You get the rise of. I mean, this is like an entire. We could do like an entire (laughs) mini series on Southern politics. Um, I think that would might be too problematic. (laughs) You know, I mean, I mean, twenty twenty one. Yeah, it would probably make a lot of people very uncomfortable because it's really there. There, there are there are very few heroes that emerge. I mean, there are some. No, there are very few. But the um, but the reality. I've often said that every every Democrat from every Democrat from the end of the Civil War through Bill Clinton had to play a double game every presidential candidate had to play a double game on race relations mm-hmm. except for woodrow wilson who just hated blacks right yeah and there like, was no, there was no double game at, <laughs> he didn't like he if didn't you pretend. <laughs> like if you look at bill clinton's campaign in 1992 and he's doing stuff that today you would say what the hell is he doing well like well, i thought he, you know also the double game that wilson plays is on catholics yeah. Right. That's, so he, he recruits white Catholic. Um, I mean, but like Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter wins the Georgia governorship in 1970. I mean, to say that he played the race card is a blatant understatement. I mean, the guy out and out ran as a, you know, like segregationist. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean yeah, without, without getting in too, too deep into it, the way, no, the way this matters and, and why it matters is um, what, so, so we've talked before about how in order to stick Van Buren um, and prevent him from becoming the Democratic nominee and, and winning the presidency again, the Democratic Party put together this enormous 
um, enormously high threshold uh, in order to become the presidential nominee. And, you know, and what that two thirds, right. And what that means is that if you control a block of votes at the convention, which these Southern senators do, because, you know, everyone in the South is Democrat and they're, you know, you have a lot of power about who gets the nomination. Um, what they also then do is in the Senate, they shape the rules in committees and also in the body in general to privilege seniority over specialization. Because if you've got a one-party state and you, you know, so you're not worried about losing a general election, and especially, you know, pre-reform, if you're elected from your state legislature, so you know who your your selectorate is going to be in intimate detail to the to the extent that you could even keep a whip count of every individual voter, then you don't really have to worry that much about losing election. That means you can accrue seniority, which is the, the mission. This is reinforced by the political economy of the postbellum South, which for a variety of reasons is largely underdeveloped from a manufacturing standpoint. You, you really kind of get two maybe three, depending on how you want to count it, but I would say two big manufacturing bases in the South. The first is in Alabama. Birmingham basically doesn't exist until after the Civil War. It's called the Pittsburgh of the South because it becomes a mining clearinghouse. And then you have you know, Durham uh, and to some extent Richmond where tobacco become big manufacturing hubs. You could argue that the Mississippi coastline with shipbuilding becomes a big deal, but I mean, on the, on the scale of it, it really isn't. And so the South doesn't experience industrialization, and that that delays the development of of a sort of urban or or, or inner ring suburban, uh, you know, classically liberal uh, bourgeoisie, and so you wind up instead with an underproductive agrarian political economy that gets propped up by federal transfers that are secured by senators in positions of seniority. Um, so, so I, I hope this is making sense of why, um, you know, you have an entire region that's committed to making seniority on committees the means by which federal outlays are secured, and they have the ability to skunk because they they've solved this collective action problem under the bad rules at Democratic conventions. The South can skunk anybody, anybody from, from the right. 1850s onward through. I mean, God, really through through FDR and beyond, the South can skunk any Democratic presidential nominee, which means no Democratic presidential nominee is going to cross the South. And additionally, mm-hmm. Republican presidential nominees have relatively few political incentives to do it because they're not getting any votes out of there anyway, because That's any right. attempt they would have would be put down either through skullduggery or even through you know violent resistance in the force of the Klan. And when yeah. I say violent resistance – both of which happen. A lot yeah. of it happens, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. you know, and this language of resistance, I mean, I'm not talking like the kind of nonsensical, overblown hashtag resistance on Twitter. I'm talking about like attempts to stop- Actually murdering people. Actually murdering people, right? So the yeah. effort to suppress integration of the public schools in mm-hmm. the state of Virginia in the middle of the last century is called massive resistance. And they're not kidding. Like yeah. they use violence. So yeah, anyway, and, that's, I mean, that's, that's what, where it happens. And, you know, the violence that, I mean, Grover Cleveland and Woodrow Wilson are, and for that matter, well, maybe not John F. Kennedy, but Cleveland, not, not Kennedy, but Cleveland and Wilson are only elected because of the widespread systematic suppression of black votes in the South. It's the only reason those two were ever president. 
And it, it's not I, even I, a close. I, I think you can throw you can throw Kennedy in there, right? Because Mississippi would have gone to Nixon in six. Uh, I, I mean, uh, maybe well, it's maybe. just I don't no, know. You're right. I don't, you're right. No, that he just would have won the popular vote. Never mind. Yeah, Mississippi. Yeah, because I'm wrong. Because forget. Yeah. Forget I well. Said that. The Republicans were still actively trying to win the black vote in 1960, uh, but it was a losing game. I think Eisenhower won like 25% of the black vote in 1956. I think Nixon was trying to do that, but I don't think that would have made a difference in the South. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about, Luke, what you were talking about with respect to patronage and the rise of the Senate. I think it's important to appreciate the... uh, the influence that patronage had on 19th century politics. It's, there is hard, it's hard to think of an analog to today, something that had such a profound, maybe, maybe television, mass media, I don't know, would maybe be the closest of just an absolute game changer in how politics functions. So first of all, definition of patronage for you. Uh, patronage is the distribution of jobs, contracts, licenses, and other emoluments for the sake of political purposes, okay? Now, patronage had existed in one form or another going all the way back to the beginning of the Republic itself. You know, Madison, Jefferson ends up giving clerkship in the uh, French language or languages uh, to Philip Freneau, so he has a little extra cash so he can um, start the National Gazette. Jefferson communicated through intermediaries to James Bayard, who was the Federalist member of Congress from Delaware, that his uh, friends would not lose their appointments should Bayard end up voting for Jefferson in the House to defeat Aaron Burr for the presidency. Madison in the War of 1812 is struggling to, you know, find competent members of the military leadership and he's warned off don't hire those federalists i don't care don't hire federalist officers it's gonna tick off the rank and file and we're gonna lose new york in the next election so these are always sort of calculations although jefferson and madison's sense of propriety made patronage well i'd add to that monroe and quincy adams they they have a kind of you know republican propriety about things Patronage was used sparingly. Um, and Washington actually tells his nephew Bushrod, I think Bushrod wants a judgeship or something. And Washington's like, hey, I'd love to, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that I can't do it. So, you know, that's sort of an example of how what Washington's view was. It's really not until Andrew Jackson arrives on the scene where we ge- begin to see patronage become part of an electoral strategy to win office. And Jackson is not an incredible utilizer of patronage. And Jackson is also very unpredictable and he's very much his own man. So to say that it's a systematic employment of patronage is wrong. But what Jackson does is he offers the Republican small r justification for patronage as the idea of rotation in office that you know, any man, any citizen is good enough to do any of these jobs. And so there's no reason we should, somebody shouldn't expect to have their job for life. So it's almost kind of an old Athenian idea. Well, of course, you know, it just so happens that they're rotating out national Republicans and rotating in Democrats. And it's later on that we begin to see this 
really take off for a variety of reasons. Um, I think the main one is, you know, the size of the country expands enormously between 1800 and 1860. You know, in 1800, Ohio isn't even a state. By 1860, Oregon is a state. I mean, it's just amazing how quickly the country fills in. And, you know, when you have new states and new territories, that requires post officers and land agents and marshals and and U.S. attorneys and all sorts of things, all sorts of jobs that need to be filled. And there's a political side to this as well. It's not just that as the United States is filling in territorially and the number of jobs, offices, and contracts that need to be filled are increasing, but it is also the country is democratizing very quickly. We talked about this last week that you see the property qualifications for voting are basically eliminated and had never exist in the first place in the West. But then you also see a larger and larger number of public offices that are voted on by the people. So, you know, in some places, not Pennsylvania, for instance, but in Illinois, you vote for your secretary of state. Well, where's that come from? Why, you know, that's a, that's sort of a Jacksonian thing that the people should have a say in all of these major offices. So you have um, campaigns campaigns need to be run. And probably the most important thing in terms of a political feature is the presidency itself. To win the presidential election, a group of like-minded people have to coordinate their efforts across the entirety of the United States of America, which is an enormous undertaking, especially in an age with, you know, no forget telephones, forget cell phones and televisions and computers. I mean, they didn't even have a telegraph at this point, right? There's no intercontinental railroad until 1869. So this is a massive problem of coordination. And all of it leads up to this following reality. Politics in the United States in the 19th century becomes very expensive. It is expensive to run a continental-wide democracy. It's expensive to finance that kind of campaign. So where are the resources going to come from? The answer ends up being patronage. Patronage is basically an analog to it would be public financing of campaigns. It is party-directed public financing of campaigns where you help the party out, and if the party wins election, they will look gracefully upon you when you come later on to ask for a job or something like this. So that is where patronage comes from. Now, you might think, oh, this is like a Hamiltonian dream come true, (laughs) right? Like this is exactly what Hamilton wanted. It's the opportunity for the executive to run the whole country. I mean, forget the kind of patronage that the Hanoverians were offering under Robert Walpole. This is a whole other level. The problem though, is that it is, patronage goes very quickly from being a tool for presidents like Jackson to a pestilence. It is an absolute pestilence for James K. Polk. Uh, He hated it. The the crush of office seekers constantly at, at his door. And yeah, they would literally come to the White House, knock on the door, you know, can I have a job? It, it, it was It was overwhelming. Polk hated it. It was too much for any one man to do. And so where is the most obvious place 
to outsource these kinds of granular decisions to? As Luke alluded, it's the Senate, because what is, you know, these jobs, they exist on a state level. And so therefore, who is who in the federal government is going to know the the dynamics of each state? Senators, who is going to know the appropriate political alliances that need to be nurtured or dissolved in each state? Senators. So senators end up becoming and if senators this is don't know, th- if they don't know, they know who to ask because they're talking yeah. to their state legislature. And yeah. look, every county has a surveyor, right? And right. so every, there's a there's a state legislator for every county. And if it's not, if your county didn't elect a, your party member, then there's a there's a person for your party in that county who will hand out the jobs and maybe take one for himself, right? And these are exactly. not, they're not no-show jobs, right? I mean, they're jobs. You have to do the job, but they they pay more than they demand. Let's put it that way. Yes, they do. And there's lots of opportunity to make what uh, George Washington Plunkett would call honest graft. So there's all sorts of opportunities for private enrichment. And so the Senate, as Luke suggested, even though the appointment power is vested in the president, so you would think that the obvious place that patronage would benefit would be the president, it's too much for any single man to handle. And so it's better to outsource it to the Senate. And to sort of continue this, ends up during the radical Republican Reconstruction Congresses and the passage of the Tenure of Office Act reinforces senatorial power. The Tenure of Office Act is passed, I want to say in 1868, but I could be wrong about that. It's either 67 or 68. It was done in response to President Andrew Johnson firing executive office holders who had been nominated under Lincoln, um, firing them because they were, you know, Johnson's from Tennessee. He's a Democrat. He wants to go easy on the South. He has, he's staring down a, a Congress at this point that has a veto proof majority. So what's the only tool that he still has in his toolbox? He can fire administrators. So the Republicans enact the Tenure of Office Act to say, no, if you want to fire somebody, you have to get the advice and consent of the Senate. Now, this is had been initially a position that the Senate the, in the first Congress in the first session had been amenable to this. They like this idea. But of course, as we talked about last week, when they established the State Department, they rejected that idea. Um, and so the radical Republicans revisited in 1867. Now, this ends up being important because once Johnson is removed from office, uh, the the Tenure of Office Act is not repealed. It remains in effect, and it encourages, uh, at least not that Grant needed a lot of encouragement, but it encouraged Grant to have a culture of deference towards Northern senators with respect to offices and appointments, because getting rid of people would just be a major hassle. And both uh, Rutherford Hayes and James Garfield end up having to expend an enormous amount of political capital in fights just to remove the collector of the port of New York City. It's just an extraordinary amount of work that they they have to do because of the Tenure of Office Act. So what you see then is 
I mean, the story is, it's, it's really a fascinating story. You see all of these developments in American politics and public administration, right? Politics is democratizing, public administration is moving beyond the need for, or be, beyond the capacity of a handful of gentlemen to manage the affairs of state. And so we need a new model. And the new model that we hit upon is patronage and the way all of these different forces align is just to elevate the power and prestige of the United States Senate into something the likes of which we don't have today. We're like, you know, we sort of look at senators as being all puffed up and full of themselves. But a lot of times when you see them performatively on committees, they just come across as, you know, blowhards, which in many respects, they are because their job at this point in many respects is just to talk. But in the night, middle of the 19th century, with the advent of political patronage, they were the the Senate was the preeminent political institution in the United States of America. I think that's a good place to leave it for this week, Jay, because we've we've sort of covered the the birth of the committee system and the the rise of the Senate and its centrality in it. Um, as as to put, I guess to wrap it up and put a final bow on it. Given that senators throughout the 19th century are playing this role as clearinghouses for personnel, it makes it that much more important that they internally specialize through the committees. And because they have power over personnel, the White House can't stop them. Right. Yeah, like there's, there's, there's nothing that can that can prevent them. Right. Um, there's there's a way in which the, the Senate can say, yeah, you and what army to somebody who has an army. <laughs> right? Yeah, because like, we'll take that army from you. Right. There's there's it, yeah, um, there's a lot of that. So um, it's, it's I, would say, I would say just yeah. uh, I, I would just say one final point. So the patronage system, just to sort of bring the conversation of the Senate to a close. So patronage system is done away with in at least on a federal level, very rapidly after the enactment of the Pendleton uh, Civil Service Act in 1883. But the Senate does not cede its authority. It's, it's really its preeminence. And a lot of this, this is where it's so interesting to see senators transition seamlessly from one, I don't want to say grift, but one scam to another scam, for lack of a better term. Because around this time, you know, the sort of old way of patronage politics is fading out and get this sort of new model of politics that's sort of typified by James G. Blaine, who's the Republican nominee for president in 1884. He was secretary of state for Benjamin Harrison. Blaine is not an old school patronage guy. Blaine is a buddy of the railroads. And that is an opportunity, the rise of industrialization is an opportunity for the United States Senate because industrialization after the Civil War, creates growing pressure for regulation. So you get the enactment of the Interstate Commerce Act, and I don't want to, every year, what year was the Interstate Commerce Act? Um, like 1884? I don't hear. Four, I want to say. So the ICC, the commission, is basically a non-entity until Teddy Roosevelt turns it into a thing. However, there is a lot of efforts on the state level to regulate industry. Like, for instance, if you go to Illinois and you look at the Granger laws and things like that, there's a lot of desire to regulate, um, you know, railroads within the states. And so um, if you let's say you are an oil magnet, let's say you're John D. Rockefeller 
and you are worried about some, you've heard rumblings about some regulatory commission that they're looking to create in the state of Ohio, the state government in Ohio is looking to create it. And you think, $30,000 should make the problem go away. Okay. You don't want to have to deal with every scumbag state legislator in the Ohio State House of Representatives. That's just a nightmare for you. So what do you do instead? Well, you deal with John Sherman, the senator from Ohio, or you deal with Marcus Hanna, the other senator from Ohio. They're the ones who are in control of that operation anyway, because they're the ones who get elected by those guys. They're the ones who rechannel federal dollars in such and such a way to maintain their political power. So who do you deal with? You deal with the United States senator. So as it's an interesting analog to what's going on in the South, um, whereas the southern southern government ends up becoming this massive kind of landed oligarchy, where with that's premised on the repression of both uh, you know primarily blacks but also poor whites, and this really sort of upside down kind of perversion of Republican government. In the North, the Senate looks like an oligarchy, but more of a, almost a kind of Hamiltonian, like a James Madison's nightmare view of a Hamiltonian oligarchy, where the men of commerce, the men of industry, the men of liquid capital, who are fearful of state efforts to regulate or otherwise diminish their capital, rely upon the Senate to... Uh, or senators to block those efforts and therefore uh, maximize their paydays. And you can see it in other ways as well. A, a good example of this would be, you know, if you think about the insistence that these guys had, the capitalists, the Northern industrialists, one of their main priorities during the second half of the 19th century was the maintenance of the gold standard. The gold standard facilitated uh, European investments in the American economy. The gold standard made it easy for Europeans to invest and gave them confidence that their investments would be, would be, you know, like the government wasn't going to start monkeying around with inflation and screw them over. Problem is, is that to maintain the gold standard the, in, in, because the gold stock in the country is not increasing at a sufficient rate for the economic growth that's happening. So you get this prolonged, like 30, 25 year period of deflation, which ends up hurting the farmers terribly. And the farmers at this point are still a majority. So who is going to be in charge of managing the gold standard? The answer is going to be the Secretary of the Treasury. And who has the power to advise and consent on the Secretary of the Treasury? Senators. Another example of this would be, you know, after the Civil War amendments are enacted, the Supreme Court gets in there very quickly and begins sort of reinterpreting the 14th Amendment to create, you know, like strike down all manner of state regulations of businesses. And again, that's something that the business, you know, businessmen in the North, capital owners in the North are going to want a pro-business Supreme Court. Where do you go to make sure that the Supreme Court is pro-business? You go to the Senate. So it, it's a very ironic development. And actually, in a lot of respects, I think validates in many respects the original anti-federalist critique of the Senate was that in creating the Senate, 
The founders had violated certain axioms about good government requiring separation of powers, that the Senate has too many fingers in too many pies. And I think there's really something to be said for that, at least in the in the 19th century as it developed that the senate is able to really kind of impose on the country a kind of oligarchy that a broad majority in the country i would say is unhappy with you know we think of you know the night the late 19th century is a period where you know, money is in sort of in charge during so-called Gilded Age, but there's always these reform movements percolating, there's labor riots, and all of this stuff just kind of comes together in a progressive movement of the early 20th century. But a lot of it is in response to this kind of, I don't want to say artificial policy equilibrium, but I mean, for lack of a better word, it's, it's an artificial equilibrium that's created not because the broad cross-section of the country wants it, but because the way the Senate is immunized from public opinion and who it's in contact with, what interests it's most closely connected to, and how it can manipulate policy in all sorts of surprising directions. The Senate ends up becoming a fundamentally problematic institution. I mean, I know a lot of conservatives say, hey man, you know, everything started going downhill with the 17th Amendment, we got to get rid of the direct election of senators. And I always say to them, like, you don't know, <laughs> realize how bad things were in the, with the Senate before the direct election of senators. Like, you think the direct election of senators is bad? You should take a look at public policy in like the 1900s, you know? It, it, well, it, it, and I mean, the whole, the whole thing is that I mean, and we, we should, we've run long, so we should hurry, yeah. and, hurry and wrap, but uh, I'll leave you with this, right? So, the way the way the mafia in New York was able to shake down a lot of businesses was that they realized that they had time on their side. It's not that they could prevent things from happening per se, but they could make it really hard and slow and difficult to get things done, right? They were very, very good um, at adding transaction costs. And the Senate under this old system becomes a lot like the mafia. And so everybody is incented to just give the senators what they want to keep the wheels turning, except in conditions where the Senate doesn't want to get sideways with public opinion. Yeah, there's this great line. I'll close with this. That's a great, that's a great comparing the Senate to the mafia. Um, so Henry Adams wrote uh, autobiography. It's called The Education of Henry Adams. And it's it's told in the third person. And there's really this funny story where Henry Adams is a young man. I don't remember what whatever executive department he was in. I think he was in the State Department, but I could be wrong. And he's talking to some cabinet official about House members. And, and that cabinet official is like, House members are like dogs, is what the cabinet official says to Henry Adams. They're like dogs. They have to be <laughs> trained. They, they need to be brought to heel and disciplined. And Adams says, well, what about senators? I mean, senators are just as ridiculous as, you know, I mean, and he's thinking about like a guy like Roscoe Conkling, like he's so ridiculous. You can't even burlesque him is the phrase he used. And Adams records that the, the secretaries, like when, at, when Adams brought up the Senate and senators, secretary's face went sheet white, <laughs> like, like and like like you like you don't talk about the the Gambino crime family that way. 
when you're under the jurisdiction of the Gambinos, you don't speak ill of them. You know, it's it it's a good analogy. So that's I like that look that the Senate was like or was like kind of like organized. It was kind of, a, it it was. Was an organized primary. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It kind of was. All right. So All right. on that fun note, we will leave things off this week. We'll continue next week. We're going to look at um, the 20th century. We're going to look at the rise of presidential governance over Congress. And we're going to look at the evolution of the committee system. It's it's fall and then it's rise and then it's fall again. Or I don't know. It's a complicated story, but it should be a lot of fun. We hope you've enjoyed this. Luke and I are having a blast and we'll see you next time.